Hi friends, this is Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to the Unchained Gospel Podcast, where we let the lion out of its cage in order to set the captives free from theirs. The following is part three of a three-part series entitled Spotless and Spirit-Filled. Just to sum up what we've looked at the last two weeks, uh, this is the final look at the Christian walk, which is what we've been talking about, how to walk the Christian walk, not just a cliche, but actually accepting it for what the Word says it is, and how do we apply it, and how do we live empowered by the Spirit of God to live the walk, to walk the walk the way He intended. Um, the theme verse, which I, didn't, I neglected to put into the PowerPoint tonight, even though I put like several verses in there, is actually from 1 John. I'll just read it to you. It says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And Jesus is our example. He's our model for how we should walk. And I, I, you know, I said briefly uh, in the previous weeks, Jesus could have just come to earth, hopped on the cross, died, ascended, and that was it. But he chose to come as a baby and to live as a human being, to learn how to actually walk as a child would learn how to walk and fall and hit his head on the, the ground and do all these things. And you're like, what a humiliation, as you would say, for God to, to humble himself to the point where he's relying on his own creation to support him as he's learning to walk and then to walk as a man throughout a, a world just like ours. You know, I think we take for granted that um, the Bible culture was, you know, safer and cleaner, you know, which is actually not true at all. It was just, there was just as much at their disposal uh, and just as much sin everywhere. And Jesus walked a perfect life for us to follow in his footsteps. Um, so our text tonight is Ephesians 5, 3 to 21. And it's a lot of verses, and, and Paul says a lot of things. Uh, just quickly to summarize what we looked at in the first two parts of this, uh, we talked about the unity of the Holy Spirit. You can actually put the verses down for right now. I don't want people to get distracted. Um, thank you, though. Uh, the unity of the Holy Spirit and how... If you look at the book of Ephesians, we see in chapter 1, God points us to who, where we're seated. We're seated in heaven with Christ because of something that he prepared for us and did all for us. He called us. He foreknew us. He made a way for us to then be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And now we get to sit, sit at the right hand of God in Christ. All by faith, all by something that he gave us. And in chapter 2, he says, even further, it's not by our own works. It's by only his grace. It's a free gift. We can't do anything to add to it. Then he goes on and talks about how not only has he brought unity between God and man, where sin had once separated us, but he brings unity among Jew and Gentile. And he makes one new man out of what was previously two separate cultures, nations, religions, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And then in chapter 3, he talks about how that was always God's plan, to take separation and uh, segregation, whatever you want to call it, and to bring everyone together under the name of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how it's a mystery that even the prophets weren't aware of when they were prophesying, but he's revealed it now, saying, God always intended for the Gentiles to be one with the Jews and for them to be God's people. Uh, And then we began in chapter 4, in part 1, which was talking about the unity that's necessary to the body of Christ. And we yield, as we yield to the Spirit, it's the Spirit of Christ in us that enables us to have unity as a body. It's not something that we strive for. It's not tolerance, which is what the world preaches. It's not conformity or uniformity. It's unity, which is taking two two separate things and bringing them together as one. Um, And then last week we talked about 
now that we have the Spirit of God, we are able to live as we were always intended to live, in His life, the new life that He's given us, and in His likeness. As we were originally created, we're going to take a brief look at that today, we were originally created in His likeness and in His image, and we were to be His image bearers to the world. And sin ruined that. And God said, I knew that was going to happen, and I have a plan to make it even better. Because not only am I going to be someone who relates to them on a, on a personal level, but I'm going to actually come and live inside of them and empower them to glorify me so that when people see them, they'll say, wow, this God must be good. Because if that person can live that way in this world, then this God must be pretty powerful. And tonight, what we're going to talk about is now that we know that we can be united because we yield to the Spirit, now that we know that we have a new life that God has given us to live out, he begins to transition into more of a, a warning, uh, a, uh, a preparation for what's to come. And the very first series we did, if you recall, when we started as a church was Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. And I, I had challenged you guys last week that when we read our Bibles, to read them in full context. Because sometimes we separate by our Bibles the nice little headers, which are there as a help and a resource. We use that as our decision makers of where we stop when we're reading the Bible. We say, oh, okay, that's where the header is or the footer. I'm going to stop there, put my Bible away. And then we take it out again. The next day we read a couple verses. And it really, it's not until we, we read it as a letter, because that's what it was, that we begin to understand that Paul has a continuous thought throughout the entire thing. And hopefully we'll see that tonight. Um, so I'll just start reading. We talked about how we are God's image bearers. We walk in his likeness and he continues on. I'll just, we're really going to focus on from verse three on, but I'll start with verse one. Therefore be imitators of God. Now that we have the new life, we are walking as an imitation or a, a reflection of what God is as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In 2 Corinthians 2, it talks about um, that we are, it's a great verse, it says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. When we are imitators of God and we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, it's a fragrance, it's it's the permeation of God's spirit to the world. And it's a testimony of who God is and how he, and he gets the glory for that. And then he transitions, and it, we looked a little bit at this stuff last week, but he really starts to hit things hard here. And you're like, whoa, what are we talking about? Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And you're like, whoa, you just totally bummed me out, Paul. You were talking about all this great stuff about how we have the spirit of God and we walk in the newness of life and we walk as Christ does and we're God's imitators. This is good stuff. I like this. The sweet smelling aroma. It's good Christianese. And we, we like those verses. And then we get to this and you're like, how can you get here when you're just talking about all the good stuff? How do you go back and look at all this bad stuff again? It, it seems to kill the buzz, as it were, which we'll see at the end of <laughs> what we're going to talk about today. But what's interesting is if you take the whole book of Ephesians into context, and I tried to give you a little brief summary if you hadn't been here, God is glorified in the fact that he can be one with his creation. He can 
take something that is apart from him, something that is unworthy of him, and somehow make a way that they can be, we can become one. And we saw in John 17, uh, if you're familiar with Jesus' prayer to the Father before he's about to die, he says, I want those who you've given me to be one just as we are one. The unity that God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have, that trinity, he wants believers to have that same unity. Not only amongst each other, but with him. And we, we read over and over again about we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and we walk in the newness of life because we're united with him. The Old Testament pictures God and Israel as a husband and a wife. Do you see it all the time? He's talking about how every time Israel goes to the idolatry, they're committing adultery. It's a, it's a unity. It's a, it's a marriage, as it were, between God and his chosen people. In the New Testament, what is Jesus and the church? The bridegroom and the bride. It's a relationship that God gives us as a picture of the unity that we have with him or that he desires for us to have with him. So when you look at it this way, you now understand why verses 3 to 21 precede verses 22 to 33, which we're all familiar with because we go to weddings all the time. And what's interesting is, as we'll see tonight, the section about marriage, which we're not, even, we're not really getting there, we're stopping at 21, but I'll hint at it, is less about marriage than it is about our union with Christ. And I think sometimes we do that text a disservice by limiting it to an earthly perspective. So if we think about it this way, the way he accomplishes the union between his creation and himself is by his spirit coming and indwelling us, right? And we'll see later on that he talks about being filled with his spirit. So not only is the relationship between a husband and wife a picture that God gives us to say, this is how I am one with you. And it's kind of weird to talk about because you talk about sex and you're like, oh, this is weird. Like, I don't want to think about that when I'm thinking about this nice Christian stuff. But it, God created it and he created it to be used in the right context as a picture of the intimacy that he desires to have with us and the union of the, the two becoming one. And he uses that. And the way he accomplishes it is by the spirit coming and living inside of us. So when we think of those things, we put it in perspective it's going to make a lot of sense what we're talking about here, verses 3 through 21. He says, so sexual immorality, all impurity, let it not even be named among you. Another translation says, let there not even be a hint among you. By God coming and dwelling inside of us, we are now influenced by the divine nature. And we can shine his lights to the world and glorify our Father in heaven. The problem is, is we were created in God's image and likeness. It's not our problem, but there was another person who found that a big problem, and his name was Satan, because the angels were not created in God's likeness and image. They were God's created beings, his ministers, his servants, but he now had a special plan for humans and mankind to be made in the image and likeness of himself. And Satan wanted to be like God too. And he said in Isaiah, where we see that... uh, what is attributed to Lucifer to Satan is, I will be like the Most High, right? He wants to achieve something that he can't have. It's not his. So when we think about spiritual warfare, which he talks about in Ephesians 6, it's not warfare between Satan and God. Because that war would be over before it even started. And it is, thankfully. 
It's warfare between the enemy and the believer, between God's child. Because the enemy doesn't like the fact that God looks at us with divine love and that God had a plan and a purpose for us. He wanted that for himself. And it wasn't his to have. And what's interesting is, what is the very thing that Satan tempts God's children with in the garden? And if you could bring up the verse of Genesis 3. Um, Genesis 3, 5. Should be the first. There we go. Uh, the verse before that, sorry. Thank you. This is when he comes slithering around. We see the picture, right? And he says, are you really going to die if you eat of the fruit? And, and Chris says it all the time, it's true. Like, we open up a portal, the enemy has his way in. He has his right of passage. He has his, uh, his entryway. So Eve is talking to this serpent, and he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, meaning the tree that God said don't eat of, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we know in Isaiah it says that Satan said, I will be like the Most High. He's saying, you're going to be like God if you do this. Isn't that what you want? He created you in his image and likeness. So when the woman saw that the tree was, note, good for food, it wasn't a cactus, that it was pleasant to the eyes, it didn't look like a pile of trash, and that it was desirable to make one wise. It didn't say, if you, it didn't have like that little like arsenic thing with like the skull and three X's, and, which I think we think that's, that's what sin looks like. If that was true, we would never sin. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So, I think we often miss... Sorry, I'm pointing there, but it should be back here because <laughs> that's where I see it. Um, is Satan lying? I, I would say that he's not. If you, read, if you go on and read the rest of the story, he's not lying because their eyes were opened. They were like God in the sense that they now knew good and evil. Before, they didn't know anything of evil. It says in verse, three, verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open. True. And they knew that they were naked. That wasn't really part of the discussion, but now they know. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They, they found something that God created as good. There's nothing about the tree that is bad. You notice that? The tree was desirable. It was good fruit. God didn't make anything wicked. He didn't make that as this, ooh, bad thing. The sin was that he said, don't do it, and they did. It had nothing to do with the tree itself. It had to do with God's word being broken. And I think we, we sometimes we look at things that are neutral, like sex or alcohol or guns, and we, we put the evil on those things because it then gets us out from being accountable for our actions. Right? But look, they knew exactly what happened. As soon as they did it, they were like, uh-oh. And they made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. A couple verses earlier, they'd be like, oh, yay, God's here. Now it says, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the reason I go here is because it's important for us, as Paul lays out in, the, in verses 3 through 6, to say, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He's not saying sex is bad. He's saying sex 
outside of the rules and structure that God has created it for is bad. Just like that tree in and of itself was not bad. But if you cross into the boundaries of what God said don't do and you do it, that's what's bad. And uh, when they did that, they felt shame. God never intended there to be shame. And what did they do? What, what, what we often do when we sin is we try to cover it with fig leaves, which apparently fig leaves actually uh, emit this like itchy oil and it makes you itch. So they didn't pick the very best leaf to cover themselves with, which I think is a little bit of God's divine humor because he knew this was going to happen. God didn't say, ah, what did you do? Oh my gosh. All right, let me put this together. Okay, Jesus, do you want to... Yeah, okay, good. Okay, we got a plan. Figured it out. Okay, whew, that was close. But seriously, don't we think of it that way? We think of it as like God was like, oh no, where did they end up? Oh no, not that tree. Ah, God knew. Um, not only did he know, but check it out. In Genesis 3.21, God's grace, we see it not only in that he says, we're going to... Put the tree, we're going to guard the tree of life because we don't want him to eat and be you know, in a fallen state for eternity. It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And we talked about that before, about putting on Christ. We try to cover our sin, ourselves, and what does it do? It does nothing. God's not, God doesn't, it, it's not hidden from his sight. He sees everything. But when we put on the covering that God has given us, that's all he sees. He doesn't see what we've tried to do or the sin that we commit. And what's interesting about this is how do you get tunics of skin? You have to kill something. So when we think of Cain and Abel, we think of that as the first death. It's not. The first death was this poor animal that had to be sacrificed to cover the shame and sin because of the result of the sin of Adam and Eve, which is a great picture even in Genesis 3. We talk about the serpent crushing the head in Genesis 3.16. We say, yes, thank you, God, for having that plan. But he was enacting it even in verse 21. Um, and it, well, let's move on back to Ephesians, just to give you guys some context here, because it's important. Because the enemy takes exactly what God wants to glorify himself, which is, this is how I'm going to teach my people about their oneness with me. I'm going to give them this thing called sex, and I'm going to put it within the confines of marriage, and it's going to be excellent, and it's going to glorify me, and it's going to be a way to, to, to show that, God desires pleasure for his people, desires nothing but good. Safety is there. There's no shame there. What does the enemy attack more than anything else? Especially in the church. It's sexuality. It's impacted my life. It's impacted so many other people's lives. Is the the counterfeit that the enemy offers with sex. And it's to, to make God's image bearers partake in things that dishonor him rather than bring glory and honor to him. So he moves on. That's why he says, don't partake in this. Don't let there even be a hint among you. It's for your own good. It's, for your, it's like when you say to your kid, do not cross the street. And the kid's like, ah. But the street, over there is where all the action is. That's where it's fun and awesome. And they walk out and boom, that's it. God's not a a big tyrant that's saying, don't do all these fun things. He's saying, don't do all these things that are going to bring about your death and going to keep you apart from me forever. Seems pretty reasonable, I would say. It says in verse 6 of Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, the end of verse 5, he says, 
Anybody who does these things has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's not, you're not going to have any part. It's like, please, understand that if this is where, you're, where you are, you won't be with me. It's a pleading. It's not a punishing. You understand? And I think we sometimes get it mixed. We think God's like looking for anybody who has even a hint just so he can say, flick, 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 and you're gone. Because that's what we do as, as humans, right? We're like, yeah, this guy's pretty cool, but I have all this dirt on him. And if you really knew what he was like, God's not looking for that. He doesn't want that. That's why he took his son who was without spot and covered us so that the spots that we gather while we're on earth are not seen. It says in verse 6, sorry, I keep saying verse 6, I never get there. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. When you read these things, now that we've kind of discussed a little bit of the background, Do you understand that the wrath is not intended for us? God does not want it to be on us. That's why he's saying these things. He's not saying saying it to be a big, mean God. He's giving us all of the tools. He's already given us all the tools. It says in in, uh, one of Peter's epistles, I always forget which one. He's given us all things to pertain to life and godliness. He's given us everything we need to to walk the way he wants us to walk. That's why in 1 John 2, 6, it says, if we abide in him, We ought to also walk as he walked. When we abide in him and we're living inside of Christ in that protective covering like Chris was talking about on Sunday, we will walk as he walked because his spirit is in us and we are in him and he is enabling us to do the the good works that he's prepared for us ahead of time. Verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers with them. Remember we talked about covering and shame and all that stuff. Look where he transitions. It's very, very interesting. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. I just think it's funny that it talks about fruit there. And we were just talking about in Genesis. The fruit that was desirable to make one wise. The fruit that looked so good ended up being unfruitful because it brought about spiritual death. And he goes on and and starts to talk about discerning God's will and being wise. And the way we do that is not by taking what is not for us to take. It's by taking all of the benefits that God has already given to us. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Bring them out. Bring them out to the light. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. In John uh, 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is talking about Jesus. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That translation is, is okay. Comprehend, it literally means it could not take hold of it. It could not overpower it. It had no dog in the fight, basically. The darkness whimpered and ran away at the light. It could not overtake it. It could not. And then on it go, he says in 12 and 13, the next couple verses there, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we're going to talk about the will of God in a, in a second. And then if you go on to the next verse, John 3, 3.19, I think is the first one. 
It says, uh, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen. There's no shame. He's like, I'm an open book. God, shine your light, because there's nothing here. There's not even a hint of those things that they have been done in God. How do we bring things into the light? He says, it's take no part, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things that are done in secret. And we do that as Christians sometimes. We, we revel in the sin of the world, not by partaking in it, but by judging it and talking about, did you hear what that person did? Oh, well, let me tell you what they did. Uh, it's a prayer request. And then you, we, we, uh, we sanctify it and we baptize it by saying, you need to pray for this person. Why? Oh, well, I'm not really at liberty to say, but they did X, Y, and Z. Well, I thought you weren't at liberty to say. We revel in the details. And what do they say? The devil's in the details? <laughs> that came from the Bible. Every popular saying, I find a way to trace it back to the Bible. It's amazing. It's shameful to even speak of those things done by the in secret. Anything that is exposed is exposed by the light, and the light has come. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Thankfully, he doesn't stop there. Is there a verse 7? Did I skip that? I might have skipped that. Sorry. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, those tunics made of skin, cleanses us from all sin. We are no longer spot. And we never longer have the spots and the stains of our sin. And then he goes on in verse 8. How do we expose those things? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we get that poison out, if we bring it to the light, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the light of Christ. It says, we, we saw it in, in uh, John 1, it says, in him was the light and uh, was life and his life was the light of men or something like that. I think I messed that up, but that's okay. Uh, in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So when we look at Ephesians and we talk about the light, the light shines, exposes any impurity, any spot. When you're at the dentist and they shine that light in your face, it's for your own good, even though you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever. Um. But they see all those spots, and they take those x-rays, and they do all that special stuff, and they can see all those little spots, things that you would never see. When Jesus is in us, and his spirit is in us, he's finding these things, and we're like, I didn't even know that was a problem. Fine, take it. I don't care. I don't want it. I want more of you. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, Chris quoted this last week, uh, and it's a perfect verse. Romans 13, 11. says, if we're to walk as the children of light, right? And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Do you see the pattern here? Toss it off. Has everybody ever wanted to do that? Like I have these like fantasies of like, you know, I'm protecting my family. And the guys are just beating me up, and blah, 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 and you see it, and you're like, thing in, the, in, in whatever the movie is, Fantastic Four, I couldn't think of it. 
And, you know, you see the classic thing in the superhero movie, and all the guys are piling on. And then what? And everybody goes flying, and he's like superhuman man. That's my secret weird social fantasy that I have. Just try to touch my family. Just do it. I have so much rage to get out. I can't wait to unleash it on somebody. (laughs) But that's what I think. But it's like, cast off the works of darkness. Just get them out of here. Let us put on the armor of light. I love it. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It is possible. Is it practical? Not always. Because you're like, oh, well, how am I supposed to do this? I don't know. You're not. God does it in you. You just have to yield, which is why he transitions. He says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, verse 14, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And he says, uh, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Very similar to what he said in Romans. We don't have time. And I, I spoke about this last week in First Peter. He says, we spend enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. There's no more time. It says the night is far spent. The day is at hand. We cast these things off because time is short. And God wants us to be his light to the world, to walk as children of the light. It's very simple, but it's very poignant at the same time. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. No! Right? And I think we lose the fact that as children, when he says no, we go, no! Right? And he says, walk as children of the light. But when, we, when we're believers and we're at work and we're doing our thing and he says, you're going to hide your light under a bushel? We're like, well, it depends on the circumstance. It depends on whether it's okay at my job to reveal my faith to my coworkers. You know, like, don't let Satan it out. Don't let him do it. No! I'm going to let it shine, right? I'm trying to keep your attention here because I'm going. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord. Everybody wants to know what the will of the Lord is for their life. Everybody does. Would you know that the answer is actually in the Bible? I don't think anybody talks about that. I know what people mean when they ask this. They're like, I want to know God's will. I want to know who I'm supposed to marry. I want to know what job I'm supposed to line up next. I want to know where I'm supposed to be in 30 years. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we're going to get that answer. But what it does say is that this is the will of the Lord for your life. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. If I can find it. 1 Thessalonians, man, read this book. It has everything you need. It's like, I think it's the earliest epistle that Paul ever wrote. He covers everything. And this is a church that's been around for a couple weeks. And he goes through everything. It's unbelievable. 1 Thessalonians 4, finally then, brothers, you guys there? Sorry. Verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to what? Walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. What does this next sentence say? Amazing. For this is the will of God. Did you know that was in here? Your sanctification. There it is. So, how do we get sanctified? We do good stuff, right? 
We work hard. We turn off the TV when something comes on that's bad. We give to Salvation Army buckets. We help old ladies across the street. We use replacement curse words instead of real curse words, right? That's what we do. That's how we sanctify ourselves, right? No. No, 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 no. And this is where I was stuck and everyone is stuck. The sanctification is a work of God. It's not a work of us. God desires for us to be sanctified, and he's going to do it. And all we have to do is let him do it. We don't leave things around that could hinder him from doing it. We just say, yeah, God, clean house. I like this much better. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. doesn't seem unlogical or illogical, sorry. That each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whatever disregards this, or whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his spirit to you. He's saying, why would you disregard this? Not only did God say to do it, but he gave you the spirit to do it for you. There's no reason to disregard it. He's given you everything that you need. And he goes on. Um, and I'll just jump back, sorry, to... Uh, and he says, the will of God is your sanctification, which basically means to set apart, to make holy. And how are we made holy? I talked about it. In Acts 26, 17, if you could pull that up. I think that's the next verse up there. You guys are all right? I know I'm... It's throwing a lot at you here. This is when Paul is recounting his conversion, which we just talked about, when he's giving it from his own lips in Acts. He says, I will, this is what Jesus told him he was going to do. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And then he goes on in verse 18. To open their eyes in order to what? Turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified how? Or by what? By faith in me, in Jesus. That's how we're sanctified, by our faith. It's our faith in Jesus. That's crazy. Not that we should be surprised, right? And what's interesting is that it says uh, in 1 Peter two fifteen and 16, another verse about the will of God. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you're like, wait, you said it's not about works. Hold on. By doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. He's saying the will of God is for you to live out what he is doing through you because it shuts up the stupid people, basically. (laughs) When they say, where's your God? It's not a great testimony when we're like, hey, get saved because God is awesome. Glug, 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 glug. Yeah, woohoo! That lady's really good looking. Come to my church. There's tons of good looking girls there, right? He's saying, by doing good, we're reflecting what God is already doing in our life. And it puts to silence the ignorant men and the foolishness. And we use our liberty from freedom from sin, not as a cloak for vice, meaning we don't have this secret life over here but we use our liberty to serve God. Does that make sense? We talked about that before, about the unchained gospel. We are set free to be a slave to God. It's a holy dichotomy, as you would say. 
So back to Ephesians, and we'll wrap up. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Oh, here we go. He's going to talk about this. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for the everything to God the Father in the name in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I just wanted to read through that to make sure that I ended. Uh, but I just want to take a look at this. We talked about how the union with God is accomplished I'm sorry, that, that marriage and, and sexual relations is a picture of our oneness with God. So, of course, the enemy is going to attack sexuality, right? Because if we can get the saints of God and the image bearers of God to do things inappropriately in the sexual culture, then that defames God, and it robs what God intended to be beautiful of what it's supposed to be. And he said, abstain from that. Stay away from that. How does he accomplish that unity? He allows his spirit to come and dwell us. So what does he do? When we're supposed to be under the influence of the spirit of God, he makes us under the influence of the intoxicants of the world, drugs and alcohol, whatever. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs. Or it could be gambling. It could be pornography. It could be anything that would entice us and influence the way we live our life other than the Holy Spirit. It's pretty easy for the enemy to find, to pick and choose what he wants to use, right? Because this is the exact thing that he has always been trying to do, is to say, make yourself God. God said you can have this, but you don't want it in the same realm. And again, wine and, and alcohol in and of itself is not wicked, but it's the abuse and the use for the, uh, the defamation of God and the glory of God that is sin. And just like with that tree in the garden, it, the fruit was good, right? And you see Jesus, he, turned, he drank wine, he turned water into wine. And wine is often a sign of new life and celebration. And what better thing than to get people to jump into that rather than the reason for that celebration and the new life and the wine, the new harvest, which is a type of the first fruits, Jesus being the first fruits of all creation and all those things. There's so many things in the Bible and the enemy does everything he can to warp it and to twist it so that it dishonors God rather than honors him. So when we look at this, he's not saying, here's a bunch of stuff you can't do. Boo-hoo, you can't have sex until you're married. Boo-hoo, you can't get drunk. Uh, man, this Christian life is a trip. It's all rules. Actually, it's not at all. You have freedom in Christ. And the only things that God says, hey, don't do these things, are the things that you can be enslaved to. Right? Why would you want to do that? It doesn't make any sense. You can go, you have a 10-acre yard, all at your disposal, and there's playgrounds, and pools, and everything. And then there's this junkyard next door that has 17 pit bulls that have stakes dangling over their dog houses every day. And it's like, man, those dogs look really nice. I want to go over there. Now, obviously, that's a ridiculous exaggeration because sex and alcohol doesn't look like a rabid pit bull about to bite me. It doesn't, right? That's how the enemy gets us, just like he did with Adam and Eve. It's like, well, that, that fruit doesn't look bad. It doesn't look like it's going to lead to spiritual death. Why would God mislead me in that way? Why would he withhold that from me? 
Why would he say I have to wait? That's ridiculous. Why would he say that I can't just go have fun with my friends and drink it up and then puke and, and have fun the next day? Which, as a side note, I had some weird stomach virus for like six days. Started Wednesday, ended yesterday. I don't understand why anybody would ever want to be hungover. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. That's just a tangent. But it's so true because I never want to look at a bucket again. Ever. It was the worst I've ever felt in my entire life. So if you get anything, get that. Jeff puked for six days straight. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) But here's what I want to say to close. The enemy is always going to offer us something as a disguise for what it really is. Just like a fishing line. That fish is like, ooh, look at that shiny thing. It's awesome. Oh, it's going through my eye. Ah, I'm someone's dinner. So when he says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit, he's not saying, just as wine impairs your judgment, just as wine makes you do crazy things, be filled with the Spirit and do a bunch of crazy things, which is often mistaught in the church. Let's be drunk in the Spirit and just act like idiots. No, because in the Bible you see over and over again, it's be sober, because the, the evil is at hand. If we're spending all of our time acting like lunatics, we're not being sober and walking the walk and being children of light. We're being children of confusion. So it's not that we're supposed to be in the spirit as we are with wine or as an intoxicant. He's saying we should be under the influence of the spirit at all times. There should be nothing impairing our judgment at all because our judgment should be of the spirit. In Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The good works don't come first. They come after the purification. And we're zealous for them. We want to do them. It's not to earn anything. It's God's gift. John Piper says, we don't pay back God for his grace by doing good works. We borrow more of his grace in order to do the good works. We are further indebting ourselves to God by doing good works because he's doing them, we're not. Um, And Chris said it on uh, Sunday morning, John 6, 28. What shall we do that we may do the works of God, right? Sounds really good, let's go do it. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's all you have to do. You have to believe. You have to have faith. And we talked about that over and over again. Just as you received Christ, you walk in him that way. In Colossians it says that. As you receive Christ by faith, you walk in him by faith. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians again, and we'll end here. I think I've said we're going to end like five times. but Sorry, I get like so... Do you guys get fired up when you look at the word and it starts to come alive, right? I'm finding all these verses and I'm like, what? You mean the Bible says the same thing everywhere? This is amazing. (laughs) It's great. It's really great. And I would challenge, God's been really speaking to me. He's been saying, how does this verse fit into the scope of scripture, the entire thing? Not just, and I think sometimes we we rightfully want to know, how does this verse apply to my life? But we'll find how it applies to our life if we see how that verse fits into the entire redemption story. 
First Thessalonians again, uh, verse 5. I'm going to do a lot of reading here, so just bear with me. But you'll see it all come together. Surprise, surprise. The word of God. For you are all children of light, children of the day. It doesn't say proud owners of a 401k of the day. It says children of the day. There's a, there's a simplicity in the belief of a believer. It seems foolish to the world. But we're supposed to receive the kingdom of God as a child, it says. For we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And here's an an amen and an amen. For God has not destined us for wrath. Yeah. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we awake or sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. And then if you skip, skip down, he says, in uh, verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. How do you quench the Spirit, right? We read about being filled and filled and filled, and, you know, I understand what they mean when the people say, like, well, we leak. Yeah, I understand what they mean. We do. Like, we, we, we don't feel that same filling of the Spirit. But it's not because the Spirit is leaving. It's because we're filling up the space with other things. He doesn't have enough of us. He doesn't have enough room to fill us. Does that make sense? It's like if you have a glass and you fill it half with rocks and then pour water on it. You can't say that that glass is full of water because you need to get the rocks out and fill it completely. It's not 100% water unless you get all the rocks out, right? To be filled with the Spirit, it has nothing to do with, Lord, come more, more, more. He has already given us everything we need. It's... Lord, get rid of, get rid of, get rid of everything in me and take up more. I surrender more of myself to you. How do we quench the spirit? We take up his space. We, we squat on him, right? Chris, you know what that's like, right? <laughs> Having properties. Squatters come in and take up the space. And he says, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it's done. It's the spirit of God. He sanctifies us. It's really awesome. And I challenge you, here's your homework. Now read the rest of chapter 5 when he talks about Christ and the church and how Christ is purifying for himself a bride. It's, then you're like, oh, wow. Why doesn't anybody talk about this? <laughs> They just say, husbands, you better love your wives, and wives, you better submit to your husbands, and, which is true. But when you look at it in what God wants and what the purpose of it is, you're like, what? God is purifying for himself a bride. And guess what, fellas? We're the bride. So when it says that the wife is supposed to submit to the husband, we are the wife submitting to Christ, yielding ourselves to his spirit for total control, submitting to him. It's crazy, right? Um. Just to close, it's awesome. this is a cool verse, John 2.10. If you remember how I said the enemy puts the fruit out there and he says, it's really good, take it. And then it ends up being bitterness and pain and death and spiritual separation from God forever. Jesus works the exact opposite. When Jesus turned the water into wine, just to redeem the wine thing for a little bit here, the, the master of the feast said, and he said to him, to the bridegroom, 
Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. That's what the world and the enemy does. Here's the good stuff. And then once you're, hit, you're hooked to it, then they bring in the garbage. And no one taking their first line or taking their first drink thinks they're going to end up as an alcoholic or a drug addict. If they did, no one would do it. Why do you think all those commercials have those pictures of those beautiful people and then now what they look like? It's to scare you from doing it because no one thinks of that when they get involved. But this is what Jesus does. He keeps the good wine until now. He saves the best for last. That's what he says. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, we're going to be redeemed. He's preparing for himself a bride, and we're going to be reunited with him. And that's why we're spotless, because of what he does. That's why he wants us to be Spirit-filled, because he makes us presentable as a bride for him so that we can be united forever. Forever. And that's why he wants us. He loves us that much. 